If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to please open it to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. We'll be le- reading a little bit of a lengthier passage this morning, but it divides into two parts, really two paragraphs. And I want to give you just a general overview of it before we read it. Now remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of believers that were enduring persecution. There was a temptation in the midst of that persecution to reject the Christian faith and to go back into Judaism. At that time, Judaism had been grandfathered in as not an official religion, but an accepted religion by the Roman Empire. So if you were Jewish, you were granted a, a little area, a bubble of safety. For a Christian, not so much. So the temptation was very real to reject Christ as the Messiah and to slide back into Judaism. So Hebrews is written to encourage the church not to turn their backs on Christ, but to remain faithful. The preacher of Hebrews, and I say preacher because I believe it was a sermon that was preached to a church based on Psalm 110. He says, Christ is superior. You've got the best in Jesus. You've got the greatest. You've got the the mostest, bestest. Why would you turn your back on him? So the book of Hebrews is written to encourage believers to follow Christ because Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to any high priest. He's superior to the old covenant. And he's superior to the Old Testament system of sacrifices. The section we're about to read really focuses on that last point I just mentioned. Verses 1 through 4 is going to point out the limits of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And then verses 5 through 10 focuses upon the superiority of Christ. Now follow with me in your copy of God's Word as I read verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Bow with me in prayer. Gracious Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we are continuing to celebrate his birth into this world, I pray, Father, that you would make us mindful that he came as a sacrifice. Make us mindful, Lord, that he is the sacrifice for sins, that there is no other way to be right with you other than through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this passage as best we can and seek to live by it. To your glory we pray. Amen. I have to confess, I think this year I've enjoyed the Christmas carols a little bit more than in years past. I didn't really put a finger on why, but it's just been good listening to the songs that we are familiar with that are sung every time along the year. But I became a little more aware this year that, you know, a lot of the words in those familiar carols are very unfamiliar to us. They're not words that we use a lot other than at Christmas time. For example, think of the song Deck the Halls. It's not one that gets a lot of airplay anymore, but it's one that nevertheless is familiar. There comes that line that says, Troll the ancient Yuletide carol. Now today, trolling something is not a positive thing. Troll the ancient Yuletide carol? Well, if you do a little research, you'll find that the word troll meant to sing loudly, to celebrate in song. Sing loudly the Yuletide carol. Sing loudly the Christmas song. And some of you are now thinking of the movie Elf. If there's a lack of Christmas cheer, sing good and loud for all to hear. Thank you for remembering. Even the song Silent Night, Round Yon Virgin, what? Round yon virgin is short for around yonder virgin, which makes sense in the context because remember right before that it says, all is bright around yonder virgin, around yon virgin, or holy night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining? Are we dealing with, you know, pine wood here, cedar? What's going on? Well, the word pining means to lose vigor because of grief. It means to yearn for something that is unattainable. You see, this call right now in that song says, we are in sin and error, and our hearts are yearning. Our hearts are longing that the grief of sin has brought about a brokenness in our lives that we are longing to be fixed. We are familiar with that longing. In a more modern carol, there's a line that says, all of our troubles will soon be far away. That's part of that yearning, that longing that what is broken may be fixed because that's something that we know. When something is broken, it ought to be fixed, put back in place. A broken bone needs to be set and mended. A leaky faucet needs to be fixed, needs to be set right. A broken relationship with God needs to be reconciled. That's the question we're dealing with in this passage. How can we be made right with God? 
It's a question that needs to be asked and to be reasserted today because on one level, there's almost an assumption among everyone that bottom, bottom line is we're all okay with God. But deep down when we think about that, we know that that's not true. Everyone's right with God? That can't be. We look at our own lives and think if God is holy, how in the world could I ever stand before Him? Truly, that can't be. So this issue is when we find ourselves yearning and longing because of the brokenness of this world, how can it be fixed? Well, verses 1 through 4 point us back to the Old Testament sacrifices. And we are reminded that the Old Testament sacrifices could not fix what was broken. They could not bring about reconciliation with God. Look, if you will, in verse 1. Notice it says very clearly, and this is the main point of the verse. Those sacrifices, the law, in other words, was but a shadow of the good things to come. It could never, by the same sacrifices offered continually, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, those that long to come near to God recognized that a change needs to take place. But that change could not be brought by sacrifices that were being made according to the Old Testament law. That word perfect means complete. In fact, we get a better clue of what perfect means. If you look over to verse 10, it says, By that will we have been sanctified. You get the idea that the idea of being made perfect is the idea of being sanctified, set apart totally unto God, being what God desired. It takes us back to Genesis 1, when before the fall into sin, God and man walked in perfect fellowship, perfect joy. Wholeness, serenity, knowing that things were right. But sin severed that relationship. The idea of being sanctified doesn't deal as much with an object being set apart as it discusses things relationally. Committed. Think of a wedding ceremony. A bride and groom make vows. To keep only unto one another as long as they both shall live. That's the idea of being sanctified. They are set apart only unto one another, no one else. So relationally, that's what it's speaking of, that we are sanctified, we are made perfect, set apart unto God to be His. And the Old Testament sacrifices cannot do that because they weren't meant to. Once again, in verse 1, notice the description of the law. It was a shadow of good things to come. Not the true form of these realities. The point of the Old Testament was to look forward so we would begin seeking a Messiah, recognizes that the sacrifices were to prepare our thinking that there needs to be a perfect sacrifice, one that could truly bring us in to a relationship with God that could pay for our sins. The shadow points to the reality. Ray Stedman is a pastor and author tells of a good friend of his that always wore a cowboy hat. That was his friend's trademark. If he was outdoors, had the cowboy hat on. And one day, Ray had to wait for him. They had arranged to meet at 3 in the afternoon in front of a coffee shop. And so Ray was outside waiting, just looking around. And he said from where he was standing, all of a sudden he saw this shadow come up behind him. And he knew it was his friend. He could see the outline of the cowboy hat. Now at that point, Ray didn't start talking to the shadow. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I know it's you. How are you doing? No, the shadow pointed 
to the reality. So what does Ray do? He turns and greets his friend. He says the law was not meant to be the end, but to point us to Christ, who indeed is the Alpha and the Omega. It points us to who Jesus is and what he will bring. Now, I know this is a bit, seems a bit far and removed from us. Because the reality is that as you and I are tempted at times to maybe fall back from the faith, we're not tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay? I've spoken with people that for whatever reason have become disenchanted with Christianity. Never once have I had one person look at me and say, you know what, I'm tired of the church. I think I'm going to go back to sacrificing bulls. So how are we to apply this? How are we to work through this? Well, we are to remember that we have to deal with this question. When we are tempted to turn our back on Christ, most of the time people begin looking to good works to make them right with God. In other words, they, they get this idea, I don't need the church, I believe in Jesus, and I'm good enough as a person that I can, can be made right with God based on my good works. But this brings up a whole host of questions. How good do you have to be? In other words, if we don't follow the law uh, in the sense of sacrifices, the question is if we are trying to earn our salvation, how good? What's the standard? You see, if we are looking at salvation by morality, I can always find people that I think and I stress that I think are worse than me. You know, I may have my problems, but I'm not a serial killer. I'm okay. But then if you compare me with Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, oh. You see, we always compare ourselves to those we believe we are superior to. What's your standard? Scripture says that this idea of the law pointed to the reality. Our idea of good works should point us that we cannot be good enough that the standard is God. Therefore, we would fall, which then begs this question, do I have to be good all the time? In other words, if I fail, if I'm thinking, okay, I can be good enough to earn my salvation, but I stumble and I fall, does that reset me to zero? Notice one of the things that the author points out about the Old Testament law. He says, they were offered year after year. Verse 2. In other words, if they made you right, why did they have to be offered again and again and again and again and again? He said, they were offered again because they gave you a reminder. You see, if we get the idea that good works will save us, that, okay, I can be good enough, how, how long do we have to be good? Because you see, there are reminders of our failures all around. See, we want something that will not just make us right before God, but that will remove the stain of our sin. How many good works do we do to attain that? What evens the scale? How many good works atone for one lie? How many good works atone for an outburst of anger? We're left wondering. And there's this reminder, this continual reminder. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? I've sinned. You ever come across those reminders? 
we have pictures of the home that I grew up in from the outside and they come up every now and then on our computer screen at home and it's just neat to see but I'm always go back and especially at Christmas time I laugh about something that happened with me and my brother for whatever reason we had gotten into a fight over some coca-cola we're brothers I don't guess there has to be a reason but it was the old plastic two liters, and he had gotten one out of the refrigerator, and I wanted it. So this tug of war begins going back, give me that, give me that, give me that. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Now, this is a carbonated beverage that we are doing this to. And finally, Doug gets it from me. He says, I'm drinking it. And he opens the lid, and it was like Vesuvius erupting. It hit the ceiling. And from that point on, there are always these dark stains on the ceiling near the refrigerator. Dad wasn't going to paint the entire ceiling for a spot. And every time I looked at it, it's like, yep, I was six years old. Doug was old, about 11. Reminder. You see that and you recognize this happened. The blood of bulls and goats can't remove that. Being good, can it remove the sins that we carry with us, those stains? Thankfully, Hebrews doesn't stop there. When we could do nothing to remove the stains, when we can do nothing to make ourselves right, when the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do anything, God acted in sending Jesus. Verses 5 through 10 focus on this. The preacher does this by focusing on Psalm 40. You may notice in your copy of God's Word that starting in verse 5 and 6 and 7, this text is set apart a little bit. That's because it's based upon Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said this, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. Now that's interesting because doesn't the law command sacrifices and offerings be made? And the answer is yes until you recognize that the problem was people looked to doing the act to make them right. Their hearts were not in it. That's why in 1 Samuel 15, 22 it says this, to obey is better than sacrifice. God didn't just want the sacrifices, he wanted obedience. That's why he says, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is where our idea of what, what Jesus accomplished is expanded. The point he's making here is not just that Jesus died, but that he had come to do the will of God completely. That's a crucial point. Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived the life you and I were supposed to live, but couldn't. So that when he died, his sacrifice was acceptable. Why? He had a human body. Human sin could only be paid for by a human. I mean, think of what would happen if you had decided, you came up with a plan. You have your mortgage, and you've come up with a plan on how you're going to pay this mortgage off. Okay, say you owe $100,000. You go to Mexico. And you exchange what you have in your savings account for pesos. And not only do you come back with 100,000 pesos, you come back with 300,000 pesos. And you say, now I've got 100,000 pesos to pay off my debt. And you walk into the bank and you set your 100,000 pesos down. Paid in full. Are they going to accept that? It's not the right currency. 
It needs to be paid in dollars because that's what you borrowed. The debt of humanity had to be paid by a human. And that human had to be sinless or else he was dying for his own sins. So when Jesus comes, he says, you have prepared a body for me that I might do your will. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The Garden of Gethsemane. As he starts to feel the weight of sin, what does he pray? Oh, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus confronted the Pharisees on their hypocrisy. Pharisees were the men who followed the law to a T. And he says to them, you are tithing dit, mill, and cumin, and all the specifics. In other words, he said, you are tithing right down to the penny. But he says, you're neglecting the weightier things of the law. Mercy, compassion. This is what God desires. Did Jesus not come mercifully? Read in the scripture. Just sit down in one reading. Take about 45 minutes to an hour and read through one of the gospels. Pick anyone and just mark the times where it says Jesus was moved by compassion. That's why he says, I had to have a body that I might come and do your will. That's why it points out in verse 10. By that will, that is the will that Jesus obeyed in the flesh. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's so important to us. Sanctified. Later on in this same letter, the preacher says this, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without being sanctified, we'll not see the Lord. The only way we are sanctified is because the righteousness of Jesus, as he perfectly did the will of God, is applied to us by faith. It doesn't take long for you to hear from the news or whatever outlet the warning about identity theft. Someone assuming your identity. As Christians, assuming someone's identity is not new to us. Because as Christians, we are little Christ. It is the righteousness of Jesus applied to us that makes us perfect. That his account is given to us by faith. So that on the day we stand before the Lord, Maybe the question is asked by God, why should I let you in? We won't say because I've been good enough. We will say because Christ lived a perfect life and died for me and rose again. And I'm here because of him to his glory. And the good news is, is that God is gracious. No matter what stain has blotted our hearts, his sacrifice is able to remove it. He is willing to give to us more than we ever deserved. Rick Warren tells of a friend of his by the name of Ron Dunn. Ron decided to take his son, who was turning six, to the carnival. 
And he allowed his son to pick six of his friends to go with him. So they went to the carnival. Ron took his son and six friends. And Ron bought a bunch of tickets. It was one of those carnivals where to ride a ride, you had to have a ticket. So Ron gets his whole roll of tickets. And he said every time they got up to ride a ride, he tore off seven tickets. One for his son, one for his six friends. He would give them the tickets. Well, they're in line for the Ferris wheel. And he's giving out his seven tickets when all of a sudden this other boy steps up with his hand out. Ron looks at me and says, who are you? The little kid says, I'm Johnny. Who are you, Johnny? Johnny says, I'm your son's new friend. He said you would give me a ticket. (laughs) And Ron said, I gave him a ticket. What a picture of grace. I'm here because the Lord Jesus in His grace has extended His righteousness to me. That's our hope, church. That's why the incarnation is so crucial to our faith. I thought of the words written in 1739 by Charles Wesley when he wrote the very familiar carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he said this, Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's the hope of the gospel. That is why he came. Would you bow with me in prayer now? As we think about Christmas and celebrate his birth, be mindful that it's only through his perfect life and his death and resurrection that you and I are made right with God. Not good works. Certainly reading this, we're reminded that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament could not remove sin. So let's give up trying to live good enough and accept His grace. This morning, if you need to come and kneel at the kneeling benches to pray, the altar is open to do that. If you'd like for me to pray with you, I'll be here to do that. Father, I thank you for the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to do your will. A body was prepared for him, a body that grew inside of a young woman and was born and lived, died, and rose again. Thank you, Father, for such glorious love. In his name we pray. Amen.